Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today I'm joined by neurotologist Dr. Brian Neff, and we'll be discussing Meniere's disease. Dr. Neff, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I first just wanted to start with presentation because I feel like this is something that can be hard to nail down, especially as a resident sometimes. Can you tell us how patients with Meniere's disease will present to your clinic? I think it's most important to kind of think of it as uh, how do I talk to a person with a chief complaint of vertigo? Um, Really, the first thing you're going to want to ask is have them describe your uh, their symptom, and I know it's cliche, but without using the word vertigo or anything they've been coached with, so they need to describe, is it flipping over, is it spinning, is it rocking? Most of my Meniere's disease patients will uh, come in with vertigo. Um, occasionally, there'll be a few that'll come in with hearing chief complaints, but um, uh, most are complaining of, of dizziness. And what kind of dizziness are you trying to tease out here? Uh, When you're seeing somebody with Meniere's disease, you want to establish uh, what their dizziness feels like to them. It can be, vertigo is essentially a sensation of environmental movement uh, in their visual surround when when they're still. So it can be flipping over, uh, feeling like you're falling to one side or the other, uh, rocking, spinning is the obvious one. But it shouldn't be things like lightheadedness or I'm graying out or presyncope. Um, I've heard that my brain is spinning before. That's not uh, vertigo. Uh, so th- those are what, what you want a description of uh, for your dizziness. And when you see these patients, Meniere's is classically described with hearing loss and tinnitus. How much uh, do you pay attention to that when they first present? So when you've asked about dizziness, one of the things that that you want to establish is, is there any associated symptoms? So uh, hearing loss is usually the first thing I ask about. Um, and you want to know the timing of it. Uh, is it during, before, after? Sometimes with Meniere's disease, though, it doesn't have good timing. And it, the patient just says that my hearing's been going down over the last two years. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not Meniere's disease. But maybe you're going to ask about other associated symptoms or not at some point. But. Fill us in. What else would you expect? Uh, the other things you want to ask about I think are very important because they help you lean one way or the other. Classically, Meniere's is the hearing loss and the tinnitus and the ear fullness. And the ear fullness really should be ear specific. It shouldn't be bilateral or head fullness. You also want to talk about or ask about you know nausea, vomiting, uh, but then neurological symptoms such as vestibular migraine, you want to ask about photophobia, osmophobia, uh, headache, uh, the description of the headache, whether it's focal, pulsatile. Um, as far as vertebral basilar insufficiency or stroke symptoms, I think those are very important. So you want to ask about confusion, disorientation, dysphagia, diplopia, um, dysphonia, uh, they call them, I think, the three Ds, um, any focal uh, or sensory weakness. So there's a long list of things you should ask about as far as associated symptoms. Mm-hmm. And with those associated symptoms, you started to get into the differential diagnosis. What else do you consider here when you have folks presenting in this manner? The differential is huge, and that's part of the problem. I think 
from an ENT standpoint, it's helpful if you can uh, come up with a list that you're constantly thinking about. Uh, you're not going to remember 250 things that could possibly be, but if you can at least have a go-to list of the most common things in your differential in your mind, I think that's important. So I think in kind of an order of frequency and importance, the number one thing is differential for Meniere's disease is vestibular migraine. Um, it has all of the same symptoms. Uh, there are some subtle differences and patients can have both at the same time. Um, BPPV or benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, a very different description of the vertigo, but uh, it's in my list of things I'm thinking about. Benign recurrent vertigo is essentially vestibular migraine that doesn't meet the strict neurological criteria. Um, they could be missing timing, uh, they could be missing headache, uh, but yet have vertigo spells that are very similar to vestibular migraine. Um, persistent perceptual postural dizziness is really a common thing that we see. Um, it tends to not have vertigo, so there's quite a few differences, but it's a large number of people that I see. Um, vestibular neuritis, health anxiety and panic, labyrinthitis, autoimmune disease, uh, could be just purely autoimmune inner ear disease or uh, secondary to a known systemic disease or it can even be things like Kogan syndrome, which has visual and ear complaints. Um, vertebral basilar insufficiency, posterior fossa infarcts, uh, acoustic neuroma or vestibular schwannoma. Um, and to throw in to make it 15 even, it'll be tertiary syphilis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and when we talk about Meniere's disease, uh, can you tell us what the pathophysiology of Meniere's disease is? I know this might be hard to nail down, but what is Meniere's disease? Meniere's disease basically has a histological finding uh, on postmortem studies. So endolymphatic hydrops is uh, essentially overproduction of endolymph with stretching of the uh, membranes of the endolymph compartment. Um, so that is the uh, synquinone of Meniere's disease. Um, however, uh, everybody that has Meniere's disease has usually has the finding of hydrops or endolymphatic hydrops, but there's a lot of people uh, that have endolymphatic hydrops that may not have, have Meniere's disease, so there's not a one-to-one -one correlation, um, and it's really poorly understood why endolymphatic hydrops occurs. Um, there's theories out there, and I guess the two theories that I think about uh, that have a little bit of credibility um, are uh, could be a channelopathy. Uh, we just don't know, is it a potassium, calcium channelopathy, but it has a lot of hallmarks of channelopathy diseases uh, elsewhere in the body. Um, and then the second would be repetitive vascular insult, um, whether it be from uh, migraine or some systemic vasculitis, um, those are the two things. But I, I will tell you that I am very open to any well-done study that establishes this and will be willing to discard those uh, uh, rather quickly because the evidence behind them are, is poor. And are, are there any risk factors for Meniere's? Uh, there's uh, essentially epidemiological risk factors, I guess. Um, about 10% of patients have a family history, so there is a genetic component. 
Uh, gene tests uh, to date really have not isolated a single gene, so it'll be more like uh, multifactorial genetic disposition with environmental causes like 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 diabetes that I think uh, eventually will be found. But the only clear comorbid condition uh, that is very common, I think, is a history of migraine headache, um, and that's what makes distinguishing vestibular migraine so difficult. So you see someone in your clinic and they're describing uh, the symptoms that we've talked about. Uh, what's your initial workup when you suspect uh, Meniere's disease? Essentially, if you're suspecting Meniere's disease, the only thing that I think is absolutely essential is an audiogram. Um, it's part of the diagnostic criteria. Um, essentially, you want to see hearing loss in the symptomatic ear. Uh, typically, it should be low frequency uh, hearing loss. Um, I personally believe there should be an effect on the discrimination score, but that's not in the official criteria. There are, if you go to the 1995 AAO criteria, and there's some newer papers out too, they actually give you the criteria that you need to see for, for the hearing loss to be enough. Um, but essentially, those things come down to there should be a low-frequency sensorineural hearing loss uh, in the affected ear. Um, and I think that that is really all that's essential. Now, we end up practically getting an MRI in most of these patients because they meet criteria for asymmetric hearing loss. So we want to rule out a vestibular schwannoma. Uh, we also usually uh, get vestibular testing, which... I think the important thing with that is is that it does not establish your diagnosis. You shouldn't be like, this isn't Meniere's disease or this is unlikely Meniere's disease, and then you look at your vestibular testing and say, oh, now I think it's Meniere's disease. It should be that you have a patient that you think has Meniere's disease, and then the vestibular testing is just added circumstantial evidence, I guess. And so I get um, an, a VNG, uh, a rotary chair, and uh, a C and OVEMP testing. And going back to the audiogram, how often do you see this bilaterally? Uh, the bilateral disease basically depends on when you develop your Meniere's disease. So if you develop it at 60 or 70, I think your chance of getting bilateral disease is probably 10% or less. If you develop uh, Meniere's disease when you're 30, I think you're probably closer to 50%. So the, the incidence goes up the longer you follow it. Sure. And you spoke about MRI, and we obtain it not to diagnose Meniere's, but to make sure there isn't another disease process going on, such as a tumor. Uh, but what is found on MRI in folks with Meniere's disease, and do you hang your hat on much of that? MRI is typically normal. And so there's a couple things that I'm looking for. Um, I didn't mention in the differential, but multiple sclerosis can cause uh, dizziness. So you're looking for lesions uh, that would be consistent with that. Intracranial hypertension can have dizziness symptoms with it. So uh, you're looking for clues to that diagnosis, such as empty cella, um, chronic meningitis, various forms can have dizziness associated uh, with it. So you're looking for thickening of the dura and other things. But usually, uh, almost all of the time, it's normal. Now, that being said, there's... Uh, studies being done mostly in, in uh, Asia that look at intratympanic uh, gadolinium uh, installation into the to the middle ear that uh, will then with contrast uh, sequences show 
uh, high drops. Uh, these are usually pretty high uh, resolution MRI scans. Um, they're not really clinically available, however, for most physicians in the United States. So you're going to probably see a normal MRI. Any role for CT scan here? I don't think so. Um, again, superior canal dehiscence uh, was a dizziness uh, differential that I didn't list, but it really is very different in its description and its symptoms. And so I think the only time I would consider a CT scan and seeing a dizzy patient is if I'm getting symptoms that uh, suggest that possibility. But Meniere's disease t tends to be very different than that, so it's very rarely that I am getting a CT scan. Yeah. And finally, do you have any uh, set of labs that you routinely get for these folks? Again, it comes down to, I think, um, the answer is no, and a short answer, a little bit expanding on that. I think that if you suspect somebody that has autoimmune inner ear disease um, or has a systemic autoimmune disease, uh, then you may consider getting some labs uh, in, in those areas, such as a vasculitis or an ANCA panel. I guess it's called uh, PR3 and MPO now. Um, tertiary syphilis is very um, rare in this part of the country, but I think depending on what, what kind of practice you have and where you're practicing, that should be considered uh, and maybe be routine, but I don't routinely get that. So we've talked about presentation, differential diagnosis, pathophysiology, and workup. So how do you make the official diagnosis? It essentially is a list of symptoms. So the criteria are definite Meniere's disease uh, requires uh, two or more episodes of what you've established to be spontaneous vertigo uh, lasting more than 20 minutes and less than 24 hours. Um, you need the documented audiometric change on at least one occasion. You need tinnitus and ear fullness in the suspected ear. Um, probable Meniere's disease is just basically the exact same criteria, except you only need one episode of dizziness. Uh, there are, are possibles, and I don't find those very helpful. That being said, you have a lot of people that don't clearly fit uh, those definitions. And uh, I saw one study that said it sometimes takes a couple of years for people to actually meet the diagnostic criteria. And so uh, it's, it's a clinical criteria. It doesn't require vestibular testing, MRI scan. It just requires symptoms and an audiogram. Mm -hmm. And can you speak again to the vertigo? You said greater than 20 minutes and less than 24 hours. Is that the typical range for what's known as a Meniere's attack, for example? It's usually hours. So um, that being said, there's a great uh, variety or a, uh, kind of a s distribution. Um, I think basically when I am getting reports of vertigo that's lasting you know, less than five minutes, uh, I really don't think that is uh, Meniere's-like. Uh, the other end of the scale, uh, 24 hours is, again, a bit arbitrary, I, I guess, but uh, that came about as basically one of the subtle differences that you can see, I uh, don't have to see, but can see between uh, Meniere's and vestibular migraine is that when you start getting people saying they're, they, they're having vertigo for two to three days, uh, that becomes 
much less likely to be Meniere's disease, and you have to start thinking of vestibular migraine, vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis. Yeah. So once you make the official diagnosis of Meniere's disease, um, I next wanted to talk about treatment. Can we start with uh, medical therapy for folks you suspect of having Meniere's disease? As for as long as I can remember, in my practice at least, it's the start, starting point is usually a diuretic. Um, we usually use potassium-sparing diuretics, um, which is a mixture of hydrochlorothiazide and triumpterine, uh, trade name diazide. Um, it's a once-a-day medication. There's a lot of controversy on how that works. Um, there's been some pretty good uh, studies showing that it actually does not change uh, the uh, serum osmolality or the perilymph osmolality and uh, that it probably doesn't work classically by diuresing the inner ear essentially but it still is the uh, first line therapy in, in North America. Um, it's usually combined with a low salt diet so it's very variable in what people uh, how, mu how much they limit it. Uh, we use 1,500 milligrams a day. Um, others use more or less. Um, I think, in my mind, it's very important to evenly distribute that through the day so that you're not salt loading during one meal. But those are the two standard uh, medical therapy approaches. Now, there's a lot of lifestyle stuff uh, that comes in that we don't have very good studies for or against, but some of the things that I think are frequently told to people is to avoid caffeine, smoking, and nicotine, uh, alcohol, stress, uh, get good sleep, uh, exercise regularly. I, I think those are all just general healthy things sure. that... Uh, I'm not against, but I don't have good data to support their, their efficacy. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about beta histine? Uh, beta histine is a first line therapy uh, in Europe. Um, it's an older antihistamine. Um, there's animal studies that show that the thought of how it works is to improve cochlear blood flow. Uh, and by doing that, maybe you diurese the inner ear. Um, but there's um, been several reviews, including a Cochrane review, saying that they haven't shown any benefit uh, of beta histine. Uh, we can get it and use it here at Mayo. My typical uh, prescription is eight milligrams three times a day, so it's uh, kind of hard for compliance. Um, and they also can't get it uh, generally anywhere else except maybe some mail out pharmacies or Canadian pharmacies. So. And how much do you talk with patients about supportive medications, maybe for nausea, that kind of thing? I think those are important because, um, quite frankly, we're not going to do something specific. If somebody calls up, hey, I'm in the midst of a vertigo spell, I, we, they just have to write it out. And so the supportive medications, I think, help them uh, with that. Uh, so in general, um, I use benzodiazepines. Um, I have an older, a lot of elderly patients, so you really have to be careful with that. Uh, use low doses. Um, I like shorter half-life benzodiazepines like Ativan. You can also use a lot of um, 
antinausea medications. For whatever reason, Zofran uh, seemingly anecdotally doesn't work very well uh, for patients uh, with nausea associated with vertigo. Uh, so I use things like Compazine, um, Phenergan. And moving on to some other therapies, before we get to surgical intervention, um, maybe the next thing that we can talk about is procedural, I guess. So uh, can you tell us about transtympanic uh, medication? There's two medications that we use um, for Meniere's disease therapy, uh, period. Um, I look at it as kind of one is ablative and the other is non-ablative. So uh, the non-ablative therapy uh, is uh, a ste- intratympanic steroid injection. It's uh, controversial, the dose and the uh, type of medication. Um, I use dexamethasone at a concentration of 24 milligrams per cc. Um, and I usually inject until the middle ear is full, which is around 0.4, 0.5 cc's. Um, that medication, uh, the dose delivery, how often you do it, how many you do, is really not very standardized. Um, what I do is I usually uh, give three injections, and I try to space them one or at most two weeks apart. And then I give a period of time of, let's say, six weeks afterwards to see uh, if they've had an impact on their vertigo control. And that gets very complicated on patients that may have longer in between their spells or they have clusters that only come every six months. So uh, that's just the general approach I use. Uh, The second medication is an ablative therapy, which is genomycin. There's lots, again, ways to give that. Uh, Some people try to uh, give it daily uh, until there's complete vestibular ablation or 0% function on ice water calorics. Um, We tend to not do that here. Uh, We do a more of a titrated approach to symptoms. So I do an injection uh, and then usually give it six weeks and uh, do another injection if they're still having spontaneous vertigo. I think you have to be very careful though that when they come back for that first appointment, most of them are complaining of various dizziness uh, spells that are not spontaneous vertigo. They're having head motion dizziness or they're having imbalance or uh, something from the genomycin. So it's actually counterproductive to give more, but um, the reason I do uh, the way I do uh, with six weeks in between is that I think you can always give more, but you can't take injections back, and I think you increase your uh, side effect profile if you give it to complete vestibular ablation. Your hearing loss rate goes way up, and the risk of kind of permanent worsened imbalance, it goes up. And what are some surgical options for these patients? There's really three options. The non-ablative least invasive option is a, an lymphatic sac decompression or shunt. Um, it's highly controversial whether this uh, works or not, but most otologists in North America are still uh, employing this as an option. Um, The reason I think it's attractive is that it has a low side effect profile or risk profile. It can be done in both ears in case of bilateral disease. Um, 
it does show about a 70% effectiveness at controlling vertigo. Uh, and it's trying to save the inner ear function, so preserve the hearing level at its current level and preserve whatever balance function they have uh, in the ear. Um, the other two options are ablative. Uh, a vestibular nerve section um, can be done in a lot of different ways. Uh, we typically use a retrosigmoid craniotomy and section the nerve within the cerebellar pontine angle. Um, I've only done a handful of those in my career because genomycin is so effective. Um, but it's for a patient that has continued spontaneous vertigo and yet has very serviceable or good hearing um, and is young and healthy enough uh, or healthy enough to undergo a craniotomy. Um, lastly, there's a labyrinthectomy, which to me is really kind of the gold standard therapy uh, for Meniere's disease. It's highly effective. Um, its downside is, is that it sacrifices remaining hearing in the ear, so we tend to do that in patients that have uh, poor or non-serviceable hearing uh, with continued vertigo spells. The new thing I think that we're thinking about much more is it can be combined with cochlear implantation uh, for single-sided deafness in patients with unilateral Meniere's disease. Mm -hmm. And can you uh, briefly go over how you uh, teach these patients about expectations for different treatments and what they should expect moving forward with their disease treatment? I typically tell them that this is uh, unfortunately a very chronic disease, kind of like high blood pressure. So we don't cure it, we try to control it. Uh, that's one of the things I typically say. Um, I'm not surprised if they have relapses uh, in the future. Um, and we can respond or treat to those as they happen. Um, I see a lot of my patients, I think, uh, that I saw at the beginning of my career, I'm still seeing, so it's a kind of a lifelong uh, relationship. Um, I think that, in general, the effectiveness of the different therapies, um, I discuss with them side effect-wise, it depends on what you're talking about, but, um, the ablative procedures specifically, I think, need to be talked about uh, quite a bit because they do risk hearing loss. Uh, genomycin, we see about a 20% hearing loss rate. Uh, vestibular nerve section, very similar. Um, and then I think anything that you're doing ablative, basically you're damaging uh, the ear that's involved. Uh, you're decreasing the vestibular function on, on that side. Uh, you have to talk about the comp, uh, the expected uh, dizziness that comes with that, and then the compensatory uh, time frame and sometimes vestibular therapy that's needed to kind of get back to baseline uh, walking and uh, imbalance uh, status. Um, I tell people there's about a 5% chance that uh, it'll never get back to normal, hopefully minus the vertigo. Uh, but I talk about those two things, I think, mostly with ablative procedures. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really helpful discussion. Uh, before I move into our summary, is there anything you'd like to add? I think from a history standpoint, uh, we talked a lot about what is vertigo-associated symptoms, but you really want to get an idea of uh, how long the dizziness is. Um, is there any triggers? Um, 
such as foods, Valsalva? Is it provoked by uh, anything? And I think the key thing with Meniere's disease, uh, there's the concept of spontaneous vertigo. Basically, you're not doing anything and it hits you out of the blue. That's what you want to hear from Meniere's disease. Um, if they're consistently being provoked uh, with head movement or something else, that is not what you hear with Meniere's disease. And I think that's a very important concept, especially as we talked about when you're uh, dealing with somebody that just had genomycin, they're going to have uh, dizziness. Uh, they'll feel that their eyes don't track right uh, for a few weeks after the genomycin injection just with head movements. And that is not spontaneous vertigo. That's not continued uh, Meniere's disease. That's a genomycin side effect. So I think uh, those are uh, a couple of the important things on the history. Um, you want to know the frequency because a lot of these interventions, uh, you're basing success on reduction of frequency and severity and duration. Uh, so you're not going to get a lot of these patients perfect. And so you have to have an idea of where you're starting. And then lastly, um, I try to get an idea. Of, you know, you'll have somebody coming in and saying they have, you know, 50 spells of vertigo a month, uh, and there's severely affected by it but then when you start asking them about well are you bedridden during this episode and they're like no they're up and around and it's just it's just a way of trying to uh, people will tell you uh, various things about the severity and how much uh, difficulty they're having but I really like to hear that they're prostrate or uh, in bed or can't function at all mm -hmm. Uh, during the vertigo spells because uh, well, sometimes when I'm not hearing that, I start to wonder uh, about some of their uh, descriptions. So Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'll move into our summary now. Um, Meniere's disease is a disease that presents with fluctuating, usually low-tone sensory neural hearing loss and repetitive vertigo. And as Dr. Neff said, this vertigo is usually are almost always spontaneous and pretty debilitating, lasting greater than 20 minutes and usually less than 24 hours. This can be accompanied by oral fullness and tinnitus. The differential diagnosis is quite long, including vestibular migraine towards the top of the list, BPPV, vestibular neuritis, autoimmune inner ear disease, and many others. The pathophysiology is a little bit tough to nail down, but the pathology includes um, high drops, though there isn't a great etiology, so to speak, uh, for exactly what's causing this. In terms of workup, the audiogram tends to be the most helpful thing, showing low-tone hearing loss. Imaging is often obtained due to asymmetric hearing loss, but the MRI and a CT, if obtained, are usually normal. Lab workup can be performed to rule out any sort of autoimmune inner ear disease or autoimmune uh, issue going on and can also help maybe with uh, more syncable type episodes. There is a diagnostic criteria that uh, divides us into definite and probable with definite Meniere's disease being two episodes of vertigo lasting greater than 20 minutes, an audiogram showing hearing loss, and tinnitus or oral fullness. There are a lot of different treatments, non-ablative and ablative. Usually we start with a low-salt diet and diuretics and also encourage healthy living. Trans-tympanic steroid treatments are also um, provided but uh, might not be of benefit. 
from a surgical side or also from a, a trans-tympanic side, uh, gentamicin is offered as an ablative therapy. And then from a surgical side, we have endolymphatic sac decompression, as well as vestibular nerve section and labyrinthectomy. Dr. Neff, is there anything you'd like to add? I think that's an excellent summary, and uh, that's it in a nutshell. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before I do, I wanted to finish with a few questions. As usual, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds to give you time to pause or think about the answer, and then give the answer. So the first question is, what is the classic presentation of Meniere's disease and how do patients describe their vertigo? Meniere's is classically described as repetitive vertigo lasting more than 20 minutes and usually less than 24 hours. Vertigo can be described as the room spinning or a rocking, but there should be some sort of movement outside the body that is being perceived. This is accompanied by fluctuating low tone sensory neural hearing loss and tinnitus. The next question is, what is the appropriate workup for a patient in whom you expect Meniere's disease? There are a lot of things that, be, that can be considered for workup in Meniere's disease. An audiogram tends to be the most helpful. However, an MRI is usually obtained due to asymmetric hearing loss, but this is not required for the diagnosis and is oftentimes normal. A CT scan is also normal. Lab workup can include things like uh, CBC, ESR, and CRP to rule out inflammatory condition, conditions or anemia or other uh, causes of uh, syncopal type episodes. And finally, describe the ablative and non-ablative therapies that are offered for Meniere's disease. To start, uh, the most common initial treatment is a diuretic with a low-salt diet. Uh, healthy living is also encouraged. From a non-ablative standpoint, you can offer trans-tympanic steroids from a non-surgical standpoint. And from a surgical standpoint, you can offer endolymphatic sac decompression. For ablative procedures, you can offer a trans-tympanic gentamicin injection, with, which comes with a 20% risk of sensory neural hearing loss. You can offer vestibular nerve section, as well as labyrinthectomy, which of course would cause definitive hearing loss. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>